This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds and by Showtime. Enter code THEWEEDS at checkout on showtime.com to receive a special extended 30-day free trial. Offer expires June 30th. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, we got Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff with me. Um, yeah, we wanted to acknowledge at, at the top, uh, we're recording this just as, as news has been breaking of a, a shooting at a congressional softball game in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. It's obviously a, a big deal, a, a sort of horrifying event. Um, but also, as of now, we don't really know anything about it. Uh, if we were to discuss it on the show, it would just be kind of idle speculation, which I don't think is is really appropriate. So, you know, check out Vox.com on the internet uh, if you're interested in, in real coverage, and we're going to... Um, sort of move on with uh with our with our regular plan you want to intro us into the first uh yeah segment? um so you know the the big news of the week is been a, a sort of odd policy story because the senate is making progress toward an obamacare repeal bill but the bill is secret and it's been i think challenging for journalists to give the attention to this issue that it that it really merits because it, the story isn't having the kind of like marker points of a legislative news story that we're accustomed to like there's no committee hearings there's no public debate there's no unveiling of the text and so a lot of the kind of normal news coverage isn't isn't happening but sarah like what like what do we know what's going on yeah so it's it's definitely different and much harder to cover when there's not like an actual there there. And I think senators 100% recognize this. There was um, Caitlin Owens, who's a great healthcare board for Axios, you know, she talked to some Senate aides who said, they are not planning to release a draft of this bill. And you know, when she asked them why they said, we're not stupid, which is an amazingly blunt recognition of why this works in their favor. So I've covered, you know, the original ACA debate, Ezra was covering that too. I covered, you know, the Republican repeal or the House repeal plan just a month or two ago, and now the Senate one. And it really are like super different experiences. I know you remember, Ezra, with the original ACA debate, like so many hearings, like like almost like, an, like it was like, ugh, like another like ACA hearing, you know, a lot of fanfare around the re the release of the bill was like a big deal. Like the Democrats wanted attention. They wanted reporters to write about it. With HCA in the House, you know, you saw um, there was a release event, you know, I went to it was like 6pm on the Capitol, they gathered all the healthcare reporters at this room um, in the basement of one of the staff buildings had aides there, we asked some questions. And there was like an embargo set that we could release the bill. And this one, it seems like there isn't going to be a draft that they want to move as quickly as possible. Um, because, you know, and this is, you know, from Caitlin's reporting for Axios, they said, you know, we're not stupid. We just want to, like, get the bill out, get the CBO score, have the vote and, like, go to our July 4th recess is the timeline that's being charted in the Senate. And, you know, it. I understand it from a political strategy point, but it kind of begs the question of, like, 
why are you doing this? Like, what is the goal of this effort that is happening? Um, my colleague Dylan Scott um, here at Vox, who spends most of his time on the Hill, he um, co-authors this newsletter, Vox Care, with me. And he had this line in Vox Care that just really jumped out at me yesterday, where he said, at this point, McConnell doesn't seem to care much about the actual policy. He cares about getting to the vote. And this just seems like a very, like, this feels obvious to state, but a very, very bad way to make policy that could have some very negative impacts on a lot of people. Like we're seeing the Senate move towards a bill that looks more and more like the House bill every day, ending Medicaid expansion, less generous tax credits. Um, you know, at some point, this will catch up with the Republicans. No, like at some point, the bill becomes public and they vote on it and the bill maybe becomes law. But it catches up at a point when millions of people have been hurt by the consequences of passing a bill like this one. This is a, a remarkable political process in a lot of ways, but but one that I just think is foundational and can be undernoticed. It is often the case that political majorities pass laws that are somewhat unpopular despite the majority's best efforts. And I think you can look at the Affordable Care Act like this. Uh, I, I keep thinking about the Blair House Day when when Barack Obama invited Republican leadership and Democratic leadership to the Blair House for, I forget how long, a multi-hour. Yeah, it was like a two-day on yep, C-SPAN. Televised like, yeah. debate over it. And the foundation, the, the premise of that political decision was that the Affordable Care Act was not popular and its success was endangered, although it wasn't nearly as, as unpopular as the American Health Care Act is. But Democrats believed, Obama believed, that it would be popular if only they had the opportunity to make their case to the public. They believed that what they had was a popular bill that had been distorted in the public sphere, distorted in ad campaigns, distorted by um, coverage of conflict in the media, and that if only you know Obama could go and argue this out and, and just let people listen, they, they would buy into it. That is not the Republican Party's view on this. They believe, as far as I can tell, they have a politically indefensible bill. And they do have a politically indefensible bill. I mean, the, the absolute core of the legislation, true in the House bill, and as far as we can tell, true in the Senate bill, is to move hundreds of billions of dollars from subsidizing health insurance for the poor to cutting taxes for the rich. Like, everything else is a sideshow to what that basic change in priority and, and redirection of money. And that is not what people want. It is not a popular idea. And it is not something Republicans believe that if they could just get enough airtime and say, no, but you don't understand. What we're doing is we're going to take health care from poor people and make a capital gains tax cut out of it, that the problem is the media is just not correctly reporting <laughs> that wonderful priority set. So the theory is don't have a public debate. Don't try to make the bill more popular. The The latest Quinnipiac poll said that the Republican health bill, which obviously is not exactly the Senate bill, but this was just last week, is polling a 20 percent approval, which is incredibly, incredibly low. And their idea is just get it passed as quickly as possible and move on. Hopefully never talk about it ever again. Now, what's going to happen when a bill like that gets implemented? Who knows? But that that really is the theory. And it's a theory because Republicans know that what is happening to their bill is not that it has been distorted. What's happening to their bill is not that the public just doesn't know what's in it. What's happening to their bill is that their healthcare parties are incredibly unpopular and they will only become more so as people understand what they are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how, to me, how fast this has boomeranged back because it really did seem, I mean, we, 
discussed this a lot on this show, but it, it really did seem a couple of months ago, right, that there were a number of Senate Republicans who really wanted the bill to be in some way substantively different from the House's legislation in a way that would do a lot more to to take care of people. And, you know, uh, Senator uh, Cassidy spoke with you, uh, Sarah, um, quite a bit. I mean, you did some interviews, you did a, a event at, at the Vox Conversations. And the whole premise of those discussions, at least it, it seemed to me, was that, you know, the House bill really just like, took a lot of money out of giving people health care. And he seemed like he was not on board for that idea that he wanted to do. I, I mean, because it was like two different things that the Affordable Care, I mean, the Affordable Care Act did a lot of things, but it like put a lot more money into health insurance. And then it also wrote a ton of rules about how that money would be used and how the system would be regulated. So it would be perfectly possible to say, okay, holding this pool of resources fixed, we have some other theory about how it should be divided up. And the House bill is really saying, no, we're going to like take hundreds of billions of dollars out of the healthcare system, use them for tax cuts. So that necessarily leaves you with, with way worse healthcare. And for a while, it, it just, it seemed like a bunch of Senate Republicans weren't on board for that idea, that they thought it wasn't viable, that you know, their stakeholders back home didn't like it. And then a switch flipped, as far as I can tell. And while they continue to haggle over the details, they're basically all seem to now be on board for the fundamental premise that what's wrong with healthcare in America is that rich people are overtaxed. Yeah, and, I think. Right. Um, I mean, that's like, because like, that's like a key, you know, in the health wonk world, there's like so much you can talk about. But then there's just like this question of like, to fix American healthcare, do we need to take money out of subsidizing poor people and do a giant tax cut? Right. And, and I think like Bill Cassidy, who you mentioned, and Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, are like two really interesting senators to watch in this space because they co-author this bill that it essentially spends the same amount of money as ACA. It doesn't get rid of the taxes, but just kind of changes who's getting what money to kind of promote like a more conservative vision of healthcare. And that's like one path you could go, right? Say like, you know, we just think the organization of this thing is wrong. But the overwhelming desire is to get rid of the taxes. I think there are a lot I think Cassidy and Collins are a small minority in the Senate, um, Republicans, in wanting to keep those taxes in place and keep that money flowing towards health care. Um, and I think it's been really like the notable things to me that have happened over the past week. Um, and it speaks to this idea, you know, as we're brought up with the House debate of like health care hot potato. I feel like I'm watching the exact same thing play out in the Senate right now, where nobody really wants to be like the man or woman standing in the way of a repeal bill passing. So you've seen like some more moderate senators say like, yeah, I can get behind ending Medicaid expansion, you know, if we do it on a seven year timeline versus three, you actually see like on the conservative side, some of the really strong anti abortion voices are saying, well, we can take out the anti abortion things, you know, if that's like, the last thing. And then like, you know, you get to people like Cassidy and Collins, I haven't seen Senator Cassidy talk yet about, you know, if he'd support a bill that gets rid of the ACA taxes. But you know, it's hard to be like, the guys standing in the way of this big um, Republican repeal plan. 
you know, I think one other dynamic that's interesting to watch, and our colleague Jeff Stein had a nice piece on this today, is how how the left mobilizes in a situation like this where there isn't like a hearing or a town hall or like there isn't like a there to mobilize against and um, how how they make sure that people are like really active on the issue. I think it's a it's a struggle at this point. Jeff had like a really nice chart of um right now people Google trends of like people searching for information on this. And like there was a spike in March around that House vote. And there was like no change now. Like, you know, there is he also um Jeff had a nice tweet yesterday with the four covers of the major newspapers, like no stories about the healthcare debate, even though that does seem to be moving pretty quickly through the Senate. And I think this is you know, I think liberal groups felt caught off guard with the last vote on in May. It just kind of snuck up on them a little bit. And it's really hard to I think they are very worried about a similar situation playing out in the Senate. This is one of these ways what what a policy process does, uh, a policy process like this anyway, is it forces political movements to articulate and show their bottom lines. Right. When you're just talking Right. When you're just talking about what might be a good healthcare bill, people have all sorts of positions, right? You have Cassidy Collins and you have, you know, a better way and you have whatever the Tom Price bill was called and you have Wyden Bennett back in the day. And then you get to this point where the movement has to create a coalition and pass something. And, you know, we are seeing what the real bottom line for the Republicans is. Uh, and it's not increased coverage and it's not, um, you know, whatever. It does not appear from what Collins and Cassidy are saying that, you know, they're, that the principles encoded in their legislation were a bottom line from them. It may have been a preference for them, but not a bottom line. It is, you know, get rid of Obamacare and get the money spent on subsidies into tax cuts for wealthy people, right? I, I, I just, I want to keep coming back to that because I think there are, there's a lot of smokescreen happening. There's a lot of diversion. There's a lot of, hey, this waiver or that insurance regulation, but that is fundamentally what is happening here. And it's, First, I think it's a little bit disturbing just as a political movement's core philosophy. Um, it's very funny. The Donald Trump apparently at a meeting with Senate Republicans called the House health bill, which he had previously called incredibly well-crafted. I think now the the reporting is he called it cold-blooded. Mean and also mean called and the bill a son of a bitch, which is kind of a weird really? thing to call a piece of legislation. And said, yeah, Republicans should no, call it something No, I think better. in a context, you think about it, like this bill, it's a mean son of a bitch. <laughs> So maybe that's what it was. But it's all to say that there's a sort of weird just thing happening where they all seem to know that what they're offering up is terrible, like really bad. I mean, Mitch McConnell, as you say, has constructed an entire and very unusual and extremely hypocritical process for this bill of which the central tenet is don't let anybody see it. Don't have anybody talk about it. Do not have time for people to discuss it. Do not allow people to really offer amendments on it. Just like do not allow this to become a, a public debate. And it's it's really, really bad. I well, mean, like it's... one of the other dynamics this creates with the tax cuts is one thing that surprised me is like how muted the response has been from healthcare interests because like – I kind of expected like hospitals have a lot to lose if, um, you know, if millions of people lose health insurance. But I think there's also a lot of people at the top of these lobbies who, you know, stand to gain from having some pretty significant tax cuts and not to be like too. I don't know if I'm like being like too much of a conspiracy theorist, but, I, you know, David Leonhardt, a nice piece in The Times yesterday on this 
topic kind of running through, you know, healthcare leaders, you know, I think they expect to work with a Republican Congress for the next few years. And like, they also stand to benefit in some specific ways from like a bill like this passing. And they've been way, way quieter than I would have ever expected. So I've been doing some, some specific reporting on this this week. And it's always hard to know what is in somebody's hearts, right? When you when you report with people, you get uh you, you get a an answer built for a reporter, which isn't like, oh well, tax cuts are great. But something that I've been hearing from them is that they are frustrated. In some ways, they are frustrated by the critique of them, which is their point is a bit this: that Democrats have had this view and it's it, it informed how they passed their healthcare bill that republicans are very in hawk to the healthcare industry and that wherever the insurers are and pharma is and so on that's where republicans will be and you know some of these industry players are like they don't listen to us <laughs> they're like you know the republican party is a very ideological party it's not as transactional as the democratic party it's a little bit less into the horse trading um they're not even really horse trading with each other and so they're they're just not listening. Um, now, could there be I, I, one one argument against buying that is could there be a more aggressive mobilization? Right? Could the insurers and the American Medical Association and the doctors and the hospitals and so on be like flooding Congress with people? They they probably could. Could they be spending more? And I'd say absolutely could. But they have been. You know, most of these players have been quite clear and usually clear actually, and then usually strident in their denunciations of it. And when I talk to them, it's like. They're not – they don't care. The Republicans don't care what we think. They're not being stopped by this. They're, they don't care even what their own think tanks appear to think. I and think that was interesting to I me. think that's basically bullshit though. <laughs> I mean if you look at the US Chamber of Commerce, right, which is you know a big business lobby. And, and one thing that you will see that they do is sometimes they agree with Democrats on a policy issue, right? Like in 2011, Republicans took the view that the American government should default on all of its obligations and destroy the entire global economy. And so the Chamber of Commerce was very clear in their public statements that they thought destroying the entire world financial system was a bad idea. But then, like, they also agree with Republicans about some things, like wealthy businessmen should pay lower taxes. And if you call them up and you're like, should wealthy businessmen pay lower taxes? They'll be like, yeah, Matt, they should. But not only that, like, in the 2014 midterms, they will pump millions of dollars into attack ads against Democratic candidates. And critically, the ads won't be like, here's a rich businessman saying, twirling his mustache, saying, I wish I paid lower taxes. It'll be like, if Senator so-and-so took a vote in favor of gun control, they will do ads targeted at gun owners about how this piece of shit wants to take your gun. You know, they, (laughs) they wage political campaigns, right? Because people understand that like in politics, the way you do politics is you identify your enemies, then you identify your enemies' weak points, then you attack them on their weak points. And the health insurance industry is not doing that, right? Like, they are not saying, we will become embittered about Senator Cory Gardner, and we will put our backs into making Senator Cory Gardner lose the election unless he stops this bill. What they are saying is, we don't, like, this bill. We want more money to go into healthcare. Then less good for them. Um, you know, they say, oh, Republicans don't care what we think, but like there's a reason Republicans don't care what they think. Like Republicans care a lot what the NRA thinks. I mean, and so, you know, I, I think that 
the flip side of this is that you see year after year, time after time, this kind of pious hope from Democrats that like the the white knights of corporate America are going to run to the rescue and defend like the party of reasonableness. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't happen. Right. There was some like absurd Larry Summers op ed last week about how like corporate America needs to stand up to the Trump administration. But like they're not going to stand up to the Trump administration because like they like tax cuts and they like deregulation. And it it is what it is. Um, I think I think an interesting question is going to be, you know, if Mitch McConnell's like stealth bill goes through, um, you know, what happens next? I mean, it it seems like this cuts off at the knees, like all of the tactical and strategic arguments for moderation on the part of Democrats. Yeah. I mean, I think, I believe Ezra Clyde is writing a piece you can read on Vox.com that I've edited that will run um, kind of making this point about how this makes it a lot easier for Democrats to go aggressively. But, you know, I want to think about like the insurance industry, because I think they're in a really interesting spot here. So they've been like, They've definitely denounced the bill. Like, you know, I don't think they've actually actually they've they've been like a little kind of moderate. And you kind of think of like what the future looks like. Let's say they do wage war against this and they like have their Harry and Louise ads and they just like really like spend all this time lobbying and advertising and like making it clear that America's health insurance companies oppose the American Health Care Act and, and they kill it. So you essentially like think of your insurance industry. They are, you know, they're left with this like ACA zombie version that they're supporting that, you know, is uncertain and they don't know what it looks like. And the marketplaces are a really difficult place to navigate. It is a place where more people have health insurance, but I don't know that like, like they're staring down to like challenging alternatives either way um, that I can see the hospitals make less sense to me because like the hospitals, like less people with insurance is like necessarily a bad thing for comfort hospitals that bill insurance companies for the insurance industry. It's like they kind of think through what are they defending? Like how much do they like living in a world where the Trump administration is implementing a law that they want to repeal? So there is for all these players, short-term and long-term interest. And I think a lot of them have mistaken what their long-term interest is or have overly discounted it. And, and this goes to the, to the piece you edited and, 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 and mentioned here. So think of sort of what is happening in the sort of broader politics of, of healthcare. Let's say Republicans pass some version of the American Healthcare Act, which now looks like a totally possible uh, possibility. They will have they, – they can pass it, right? They control the House. They control the Senate. They control the White House. Nobody can stop them from passing a shitty bill, but they can't protect it. A bill that you are not willing to even argue about before it passes is not a bill that you can protect once it comes in, takes away insurance from tens of millions of people and um, throws the entire system into chaos. Republicans will create in Democrats the same kind of driving force that repeal and replace created in Republicans. Democrats naturally care more about health care than Republicans. So once Republicans take away these coverage gains, this will become like the raison d'etre of the Democratic Party um, with a lot more institutional and policy support behind it. So then eventually Democrats who among other things, have won the popular vote in the last, what is it, six of seven presidential elections, are going to take back power. And they're going to do something on health care. And, and what will have happened here? There have long been these sort of democratic incrementalists 
who believe, you know, maybe they like single payer, maybe they don't, maybe they like Medicare for all, maybe they don't, but they don't believe you can get it done. Um, and they believe that for all kinds of reasons. They thought something would be more stable and more possible to pass with Republican support. Uh, they thought that it was important to get the health industry on board because they could exercise a lot of force in destroying anything that happened. That was one of the big lessons of 1994, where I think the Harry and Louise heads get more credit than they really deserve for killing that bill, but, but it's part of the democratic mythology around that failed effort. And so there were these sort of moderate Democrats, of which Obama was one. Obama who said to us in our interview, you know, if I could just do it from the beginning, I would do single payer, but we're not starting from the beginning. You know, they decide to create these public-private hybrid programs, hoping to get Republican support, hoping to get insurance industry support. And so what Republicans have taught them now is you will not get Republican support <laughs> for one of these hybrid public-private programs. It doesn't matter how much you want it. It doesn't matter what you would bargain away to get it. It doesn't matter whether you base it on Mitt Romney's plan. Like, Republicans are going to to hate it as much as if it were true single payer. So that argument is off the table. Uh, in the, the health industry is proving to be a completely useless ally. So the idea that it's really important to have them on board, Republicans are disproving that. Uh, because of all this, you're going to have from here on out the presumption that you do major health reform with 51 votes through reconciliation. So you need something that can fit through that, which expanding government programs does, um, whereas re-regulating private insurance markets doesn't. And you'll have these smoking ruins of Obamacare, which were already pretty hard to defend because Democrats had to defend the decisions of private insurance actors, right? Aetna decides to increase premium somewhere. And now Democrats are on the hook for why there's an Aetna-based premium increase. And so what's going to happen when Democrats come back in? I think what's going to happen in a party that's already moving left is they're going to go not all the way for single payer where you wipe out you know, everybody's employer-based insurance, but to something like Medicare buy-in, highly subsidized by taxing rich people. And the insurance, you know, the health industry is going to come to them and say, hey, that's a terrible idea. And I think Democrats and liberals are going to say, sorry, you know, you guys had your chance. Uh, Republicans might scream and yell, but they were going to scream and yell anyway. And there might be these Democratic incrementalists who say, well, why don't we go revisit Obamacare? And they're going to be completely discredited, their political argument totally destroyed. So one thing that I really think is true here is that if Republicans pass this bill, they're creating an unsustainable political equilibrium. Their idea of what to do in the healthcare system is not popular. Uh, and that's why it cannot be defended. Um, it's been proving reasonably, I think, straightforward to defend Obamacare's coverage gains for Democrats, which is why the Republican bill is so unpopular. I do not think it's going to be easy to defend fewer people insured in the future. Democrats are going to have a lot of energy on this, and there's going to be really no capital left in the wing of the party that has been trying to find compromises and trying to find sort of middle ground solutions. And so, you know, I, I do think that if they pass, I believe this completely, Mitch McConnell went before Senate Republicans and said, if Obamacare is left in place, he thinks it'll become single payer. Um, I think it's just the opposite. If they destroy Obamacare, I think they're going to get, again, maybe not full single payer, but something like Medicare buy-in, you know, within 10-ish years. Can I have one, one thought I have on that? So one way I could see that not happening is that we don't really know what like a healthcare like scorched earth campaign looks like. And right now, I think, you know, another reason health insurance might not be going super hard against this is like at the end of the day, there's still a role for health insurance companies under HCA. The individual market is like a small, I think it's about 7% of the overall insurance market. Like you can toy around with the insurance markets and, um, you know, health insurance companies will generally be fine. I would be curious to see so, – so kind of like the argument you're making is that, you know, 
industry, like you don't have to worry about them as much as we thought. And I think there's definitely some truth to that. But I could see an effort by Democrats to do like Medicare buy-in or Medicaid buy-in getting a much more aggressive response from industry and, you know, like, like going for like the ads and like the lobbying and like the huge response that we haven't seen on HCA because they would see something like that threatening their existence in the way that uh, the Republican bill doesn't. And, and I don't know how that plays out, like how much that kind of campaign against if it like really amped up, how much that would matter to like stopping a Medicare buy-in. I mean, I think it matters. You know, there's like two levels to it, right? There's like the intra-party argument and there's the inter-party argument. And I agree with you that like this industry that suddenly seems powerless, like will find that it's actually quite powerful when it when it gives a damn. But but where I agree with Ezra is the the dialogue like between Democrats, right? Like there's been a fight going on for years between, you know, single payer advocates and democratic incrementalists in which the incrementalists have always had transformationalists and incrementalists. Yeah. As I'm trying to popularize it. (laughs) Incrementalists have always had the overwhelming upper hand. Right. And then like Bernie Sanders kind of unexpectedly like, like punched really, really hard. Uh, Although, you know, Clinton had a a bunch of other weaknesses and, and stuff, but you know, he showed there was still like a lot of grassroots love out there for this. And then Republicans are coming along with with a bill that it completely discredits the moderate Democratic stance. I don't think it eliminates the worries that moderate Democrats have about actually taking on industry, but it discredits the idea that there's an alternative to taking on the industry, right? I mean, Bernie uh, wrote this New York Times op-ed that made a lot of, I, I think, weird assertions about British politics. But like, it just has this thing in the end where it's like, I'm going to be really simplistic and say, like, Democrats have to decide, are they on the side of like, good things or terrible companies? And that's like, basically, what's happening here, right? Like, if you can't make a deal with the terrible companies that winds up helping poor people get health care in a way that's bipartisan and sustainable, then like, he's right, you have to pick. And if you have to pick, you know, it it is what it is, right? I mean, the tobacco industry uh, fought like long and hard, but they were eventually defeated and there was just no like deal to be done there. Whereas it seemed, I mean, I, I think, you know, Barack Obama and Max Baucus and all the architects of this policy, you know, really um, thought that they could not only spare themselves an ugly political fight by cutting deals, but that they could make an arrangement that was going to be really robust and really durable, that it was going to have all this buy-in from stakeholders and, you know, Republicans wouldn't want to touch it. And we would all kind of look back and say, yeah, that was smart. You know, it was, it was really good that they didn't like go for broke. Um, and you know, if you can just like repeal the bill in secret with 50 votes and, and the vice president Pence and, 13% poll numbers like the you know h- how are you going to get up like next time on a democratic primary stage and say like no we need to do obamacare again right like there's I mean, there's no way yeah i mean one thing that I- i've heard when i've been reporting on this is from from obamacare advocates from industry folks people saying correctly i think look obamacare is could work right you just it needs some more subsidies you know you got to <laughs> yep. ramp up the individual mandate it's completely true you could you could toggle the system 
it's such a weird argument at this point. I mean, and, and I think there's something notable within the dynamics of the Republican appeal bill itself. So ju- just to be very specific on what seems to be going on, Republicans appear to be envisioning a structure where the complex public-private hybrid market exchanges would see their tax credits and insurance regulations unwound in, in the House bill. It's 2018. But Medicaid – is in this kind of interesting argument where it appears right now the position of the Republican moderates is it entirely phases out after seven years, with I guess the hoping they don't get blamed for that, or maybe it never happens. And, you know, the sort of more conservative wing of the Senate saying three years, and I think McConnell maybe said three years, and Dylan Scott thinks he'll just say, fuck it, five years, and maybe they will. But one of, I think, the lessons here is that it's actually more defensible. Uh, even putting aside whatever you think of the policy, people like Medicaid, people like Medicare, it's simple, government controls the premiums, and that if you're thinking about how do you build a, a fortress that you can actually defend when you lose power, that something like Medicare buy-in is a lot harder to screw with than something like Obamacare. Uh, which, uh, again, may be right, which is uh, – I think this is going to have a lot of unintended consequences. Passing – the one thing about Democrats is whatever else you believe about that bill, they believed to their core that when people understood what was in it, it would be popular. And it kind of wasn't until it got threatened and now Obamacare actually has become popular. There's a way in which they ultimately turned out to be quasi But I, I would argue they did not – convince any of their opponents essentially lukewarm democrats got on board republicans have not changed their views through any of this and and so but but what i do mean there is that democrats believe that what they had was a system that when the public understood what it was they would like it i really believe republicans do not think that about their own plan it's like the craziest thing i've ever seen they do not believe that if everybody they could just sit everybody down and explain what was in it that people would like that better they can pass that plan, but that plan is not going to survive. I, I mean, I actually have a serious question as to whether they understand this plan. I, I mean, obviously, somebody must, but the public statements that Republicans have made about this bill do not reveal a great deal of engagement with its provisions. No, I mean, especially from the executive branch. Like, I watched... Um... <laughs> That's such a gentle way of saying that. <laughs> well, I, I... I want to say it's larger than no, no, because I'm sure, making the point. It's fair. larger than that's Trump. Fair. I watched um, Vice President Pence speak to HHS yesterday, where he said we're working on a plan that's going to cover everyone, and it's like no, no, you're you're certainly not, and like maybe you guys have had an about face and you think the House bill is mean, but you know it seems like you are not working on a plan that will cover. Everybody. And it, it, this is like one of the other bizarre things aside, like there's both like the secrecy side, w- which seems to be more of a Congress thing. And then there's like the lying side, which is more of like an executive side thing where instead of being secret, they've just decided they will go out and say things that are not true about this bill. And it started with, you know, Trump in some of these interviews in like late April, early May, making these claims pre-existing conditions are protected, everyone is covered. And then it spreads to like Tom Price on the Sunday show saying Medicaid won't be cut, which is another giant lie. And then you have Pence just yesterday saying, you know, we're going to cover everybody. And it, it maybe they understand the mill, maybe they don't. I, I don't no, but they are certainly not making clear in their public statements what this bill actually does. Yeah, I mean, I just mean it's not – to me it is – like it's – I cannot believe that like 
nobody in the executive branch understands what the provisions of this legislation are, but there's no evidence <laughs> that they do. Right. I mean, but in part, that's because there's been a lot of secrecy. You you haven't had them like go down to the hill for hearings where there's like extensive discussion of what's going on. But it, as far as one can tell from the public statements and public communications from the executive branch, they have no idea what's in what's in the legislature, like any of its main provisions. They never discuss anything that the bill does in an accurate way like you don't hear trump even like the thing like clearly one thing republicans are enthusiastic about this bill is that it cuts taxes you do hear donald trump talk about taxes but never in the context of the health care bill i don't maybe he knows that this bill is a large tax cut but i mean he might not i can't i can't tell and i've never heard i I have sometimes have heard some things from from the white house you know on the on the down low but i have never heard anyone be like oh everyone knows this is a piece of shit but we're wondering how we can i I just i don't know what this is the one time matt i might say i think you're actually being too generous to republicans (laughs) where this isn't secrecy like the, the the house bill is out there you can go read the american health Care Act. Like these are things they are saying about a bill that exists. It's well, not. Tom, I mean, Tom secrecy. Price is lying. He's 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 a well informed guy. But I, I mean, I, I just I don't know what's happening. You know, being well informed, frankly, I think is always a great idea. Uh, but it's particularly important these days. I think the Great Courses Plus is, is a great way to do that, to, to learn from, from really smart people. So I want you to discover the Great Courses Plus too. Uh, they're offering our listeners a free month of free video lectures when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. You can learn more about anything, uh, the history of economics, Russia, psychology, or get into like some new hobbies, you know, how to cook better, how to play guitar. It's, it's fun, but it's also informative. Right now, uh, I'm checking out thinking about cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. Um, this is something that, you know, is on a lot of our minds recently for, for obvious reasons. Paul Rosenzweig's a big expert on this. He offers insight into how digital espionage works, uh, computer viruses, but also about the tools that we can personally use to protect ourselves from cybercrime. That's technical stuff, but it's not sort of personal stuff. It's about your habits. It's it's really like if you learn about this, you can do it better. And and that's what you get from these lectures. It's really important. Uh, Great Courses Plus is unlimited access, though, not just to this, but to over 8,000 video lectures. You can stream them from, from any device like your phone, uh, one of these little TV connected boxes, whatever, or you can download the videos to watch offline. It's incredibly convenient. And our listeners get the first full month for free if you sign up through our special URL, uh, The Great Courses plus.com slash weeds uh, get your free month you're gonna love it sign up today the great plus.com slash weeds that's the great plus.com slash weeds you know who else doesn't know what is happening slash maybe what has happened attorney general jeff sessions that is true <laughs> who went to capitol hill he um he really didn't want to talk about his meetings with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak. I mean, I t- stepping back, he was supposed to go to the Appropriations Committee for like regular Justice Department appropriation stuff. And then he said like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send my deputy instead. I'm going to have secret testimony at the Senate Intelligence Committee. And then everybody was like, oh, my God, it's a cover up. So he changed his mind and the intelligence testimony became public. So he went over there yesterday, but he he refused to answer a, a huge range of questions. So the, the 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 backdrop, the basic things they were trying to get out of him, and I think this is a reasonable uh, estimation of it, is one, there are apparent meetings he had, or at least contact he had 
with the Russian ambassador that was not disclosed before the committee, that was not disclosed on security clearance forms. And the sessions went before the committee and he gave this kind of fiery opening statement. And he said, you know, I was your, I was your colleague for 20 years. You know me as an honorable patriot. I'm not part of some Russian conspiracy to undermine American democracy. But he also said, listen, if those meetings happened, if I was in a small group with the Russian ambassador, I've just forgotten it. Because who among us has not forgotten being in a small group with the Russian ambassador? Uh, so that was one piece of it. But the other piece of it, the the other sort of big concern about Sessions right now is that he said he had recused himself from anything related to the Russia investigation, but he was involved in the firing of James Comey, which the president of the United States has said was related to the Russia investigation, was because of the Russia investigation. So Sessions appears before the the committee. And he offers what at first seemed like a quasi-reasonable defense of this, where he says, look, like, I do manage the FBI. I did not recuse myself from managing questions around Jeff Sessions. We were asked to come up with a recommendation on Comey. Our view, for reasons unrelated to the Russia investigation, was that Comey should be fired because there's a leadership crisis at the FBI, which obviously a lot of people dispute, but whatever. And, you know, that that was it. And so then he was asked repeatedly, well, did Donald Trump ever talk to you about Comey and Russia? And he repeatedly said, executive privilege. He characterized other conversations he'd had with Trump or not had with Trump about other things. But as soon as anybody came to say, hey, what did Trump say to you about Comey and Russia? Which if Trump said, hey, I want Comey out of here because of all this Russia stuff, he under oath would not answer that question. That looked weird. That did look weird. And I think we had one of our colleagues, Sean Elling, he talked to, I think, nine law experts who said, like, no, he definitely could talk about it. I would certainly, like, it, it did not seem like a credible excuse to a question he got again and again. So one thing I've obviously been very focused on, the healthcare discussion in the Senate was not as up on the sessions hearing. But I'm curious, like, you guys who are following it more, kind of like how you think about this playing out next with session, like we've gone through sessions, we've gone through Comey, where this goes next from like a Capitol Hill perspective. They are going to face some inquiries from Robert Mueller's office, which is going to be a process that is not controlled by Republican Party elected officials, and in which the Trump people are going to have to, at a minimum, sharpen what the legal argument that they are making is. Um, both Sessions and before him, a number of the intelligence chiefs, they declined to answer questions, but they didn't like really formally make an executive privilege claim, at least as as I've traditionally understood it done. And then consequently, Democrats sort of whined, but Senator Burr and the majority did not like press them on it. So we never like litigated the issue of like, did Sessions really claim executive privilege? Is the executive privilege claim defensible? And we're going to end up hashing that out, I think, with the special prosecutor, right, who is at some point going to say, you have to come and you have to testify to us about what Trump said. Sessions, if he says, no, I'm not going to answer those questions, is going to have to, like, show up with an attorney and, like, an explanation of why he's refusing. Um, then there may be court cases about it. I mean, you get into the kind of, like, tedious slog of an investigation. But it seems like that's where it will go, because Congress, the Senate Intelligence Committee is 
landed in this interesting place where like the other arms of Congress are just like not functioning at all. And so it's it's making this Senate Intel Committee inquiry like look pretty solid. But still, the, the Republicans running the inquiry are they're like they're letting it happen and they're having the principals come and testify. But they're then acting like the sort of friendly team audience that, you know, lets them off the hook that doesn't that doesn't throw down any of the really tough stuff. I, I don't like I don't know Robert Mueller. I, I don't want to make too many third hand assertions about him. But my assumption is if you're the former FBI director, you don't leave your comfortable job with like a white shoe law firm to go head up this contentious partisan investigation just to like go take a dive and say like, well, if Jeff doesn't want to talk about it, that's that's good enough. So I, I feel like that's where it will So go. I actually think the craziest thing that happened this week, it was not the Sessions testimony. And I'm speaking here in the Russia investigation, obviously. Uh, it was not the Sessions testimony, but was the 24 to 48 hour bubble of would Donald Trump fire Robert Mueller? I have trouble like expressing how insane what happened here is. So there began to be on, let's say, Monday – a lot of coverage in Breitbart, in sort of Trump-associated media outlets, that maybe Donald Trump should fire Robert Mueller. And why should he fire Robert Mueller? Because. Because Robert Mueller is friends with James Comey, because although Robert Mueller was repeatedly appointed by Republicans, some other people who have been hired by Robert Mueller have donated to Democrats in the past, although, as Matt noted in a tweet, so has Donald Trump. Uh and basically, like, you should fire him because he can, because Mueller could create problems for him. So then there was like a 24-hour bubble where this began to get more serious. Chris Ruddy, who is the CEO of Newsmax, which is a very weird fringe conservative publication, but is a good friend of Donald Trump's and plays a very weird role in Washington right now where he will go hang out with Donald Trump and then go walk out of the room and speak to the press characterizing Trump's thinking about things that Trump has not said. So he talked about maybe Trump wants to fire Reince Priebus previously, and that created a bubble around firing Priebus. He said, here, Trump is considering firing Robert Mueller. So this made this more real. So then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who remember, because Sessions is theoretically recused from the Russia investigation, Rosenstein is the DOJ official in charge of Mueller. Rosenstein appointed Mueller. He's, he's got control of this. He came out with a very unusual statement where he said, I see no reason to fire Robert Mueller and I would not do – I would not follow an unlawful order. So, I mean, that's a very harsh pushback, right, that you will have to fire me you know, or somehow take the position away from me in order to fire Mueller. Like I am not going to just do your bidding because you've decided you don't like Mueller. So Rosenstein is clearly at this point acting – he is a deputy attorney general and is clearly somewhat hostile to Donald Trump. Right. He's been humiliated. Um, his credibility is on the line. And so now he is acting in a way to make clear that, like, he is not part of this cover up. He is somebody who's trying to get to the truth. Mueller also can read press accounts. So Mueller knows that Donald Trump is wandering around saying to people, maybe he'll fire him, which, again, if you're an FBI, a former FBI director, probably does not make you less suspicious, probably does not make you love the guy. So Trump is on the one hand radicalizing Mueller and his boss against him by just musing without even being clear if he can do it politically or, or substantively, really, given Rosenstein's views, uh, that he might fire Mueller. So that's this weird backdrop. And then amidst this backdrop, you had the Comey testimony last week where Comey said very clearly, 
Uh, he expects that Mueller is going to look into the question of whether or not Donald Trump technically obstructed justice. And then Sessions comes before the committee. And and I think at this point you raised there is really important. He could have just said, no, Donald Trump has not mentioned that to me. There is nothing that is categorical about not characterizing conversations with the executive. I mean, attorney generals, they write memoirs. They go and they talk about things in public. They go and they give highly paid speeches. It is often the case that, you know, I think Matt actually made this point on the weeds, but like you go and you read Robert Gates's memoir of working the Obama administration. He just talks to Obama about stuff. Sessions could have said no. That he didn't say no is a big red flag to Mueller, who is investigating the specific thing that Sessions refuses to say didn't happen. (laughs) And is investigating in a context where he is pissed off at Trump and his direct boss is pissed off at Trump. So this doesn't look good to me for Donald Trump. This actually seems like the way the pieces are aligning is quite bad, although, as Matt says, it is bad on a kind of slower time fuse in these testimonies. This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by the Showtime documentary film, The Putin Interviews. Uh, through a series of candid conversations, uh, filmmaker Oliver Stone delivers a fascinating and intimate look into the psyche of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, don't miss The Putin Interviews. It's an unprecedented four-night event. It's now streaming on Showtime. If you enter the code The Weeds at checkout on Showtime.com, you get a special extended 30-day free trial offer. The offer expires on June 30th, so, so act fast. Uh, 30 days of free Showtime. Check out... Oliver Stone's The Putin Interviews. Hey guys, Ben Epstein here from the Limited Upside Podcast. And we decided to do a NBA Finals post-mortem. We had two of our favorite guests on, Mike Pina from Vice Sports, as well as Mo Dacchio from thejumpball.net, two of our favorite and most intelligent NBA analysts. You can find our podcast, and by the way, we do these all the time, but you can find these on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SBNation.com backslash NBA. And I think if you're someone who's into intelligent and also kind of funny NBA podcasts, you will enjoy the Limited Upside podcast. Speaking of slow time fuse. Speaking of things that are bad. <laughs> lead. lead. Lead poisoning. It gets the kids, and then 20 years later, they turn into criminals. <laughs> um, Sometimes. Uh, well, at a surprisingly high rate. Uh, no, so I, I, I've I've long been been interested in this 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 lead uh, issue. Uh, it it bubbled up a lot around the uh, Flint uh, water crisis situation. Also, many of us um, have read Kevin Drum's writing on the internet about lead and, and crime. Uh, but Jennifer Doliak uh, from uh, Brookings Institute recently did a sort of a nice roundup of some of the newer research that's that's come forward on this. Um, the kind of Original lead crime link type stuff that Kevin Drum had rounded up is all based on a kind of time series analysis. And you can show that in the United States, but also a bunch of other countries, when they phased out leaded gasoline, about 20 years later, they start seeing their crime rate fall quite a bit. Um, so that's an intriguing piece of evidence. There's also a pretty good, uh, like biology level account of why that might be. So that was convincing enough to some people. Um, but, uh, you know, hardcore social scientists don't like time series analysis. Um, and, and so she found a, a bunch of sort of newer, uh, more, more empirically rigorous type, type studies. So one of them, James Feigenbaum and Christopher, uh, Mueller look at the fact that 
some cities have lead pipes, others don't. Some cities have acidic water and others don't. And it's only when you had acidic water flowing through the lead pipes that the lead would actually get in. So you can compare. This was a, a while ago. Now, except for Flint, we treat the water. Um, but you can look historically at cities that had acidic water flowing through lead pipes and compare them to either case, right? Like the pipes are made of something else or the water is different. And they show that when you have that combination, there's a crime rate spike with a 20-year lag. Uh, Anna Azer and Janet Curry looked at Rhode Island public schools where you can have uh, socioeconomically similar people attending the exact same school, but some of the kids grow up near the highway and some of them far from the highway. The kids who are near the highway um, are much more likely to be suspended from school, and they're much more likely to wind up being incarcerated as juveniles. Then Stephen Billings and Kevin Schneppel did what's in some ways the most telling of these, because they're looking at kids in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. That's the Charlotte area. And they're looking at kids who almost qualified for special CDC intervention uh, to reduce their lead exposure, but they weren't quite getting enough lead to meet the threshold. And those kids turned out to do quite a bit worse than the kids who were just over the threshold. Uh, they're more likely to be suspended, um, more likely to be absent from school, and more likely to be arrested for, for violent crimes. Um, so that last study is particularly interesting just because it shows that the CDC interventions actually are like working really well uh, because it's, I mean, it's good to identify problems, but it's like, it's even better to identify solutions. And it turns out that like, they seem to have a pretty good solution. I mean, not to say it, it completely eliminates all the risks, but it, it was making a big effect and you could presumably just like lower the threshold for intervention and, and you'd be, you'd be doing some good. Um, anyway, I, I'm just, this has never become like a, a hot button topic in the way that like gun control is, but there seems to be more and more evidence of like potentially massive social gains from, from lead cleanup. Right. And it's not just about violent crime too. Like some of these studies, you know, look at um, other things in terms of like school suspensions, just like general performance. There's some theorizing um, the recent really steep decline in teen pregnancy that might also be related to um, de-letting efforts and that you have better impulse control. You, you have kids who are making smarter decisions about unprotected sex. I think the last study you mentioned, you know, it makes me both like optimistic and pessimistic in a way that like, like we do have a solution, right? Like, like we can show in that study that it seems like if you do the CDC intervention that, um, that, that you actually do see better outcomes. But like the pessimistic reaction I have to that is that's expensive and hard and like a lot of the times it just doesn't happen or you have to get above a certain threshold. Um, I ended up doing a decent amount of reporting on lead poisoning during the Flint crisis. And, you know, one of my takeaways from that is that it doesn't seem like there's any safe level of lead. It's not like you can be below a certain threshold and be all right. But, you know, the CDC right now, like, they really a lot of the guidance, like a lot of the way cities and states work is they address like the worst cases. And like, if you only have like a little bit of lead poisoning, like you're probably not going to get that remediation help, which is which is hard work. Like it involves like repainting, like redoing pipes, for example. Um, it, there's a lot of work that has to happen to kind of create a lead free environment. And that often, you know, and I think it makes sense cities have to have, you know, constrained budgets, they have to prioritize resources, they often focus on the kids who are facing the most lead risk, but it's 
also kind of difficult to wrap your head around. There are a lot of kids facing very low lead risk, and that's just kind of a problem we live with because, you know, as we said, like a lot of the consequences don't show up for decades. This is one of those issues and, and one of those strains of research that I think is really challenging to our politics in, in deeper ways than, than people often let on. So one of the things here that you're seeing, and, and it's true in lead and, and turns out to be a particular thing you can really study in lead, but we know it's true in all kinds of other things about early childhood environment, is that the environment children are raised in uh, from, from the earliest age uh, has very, very, very large impacts on their long-term uh, success. And it has impacts on their school achievement, it is impacts on their impulse control, it is impacts on their IQ, it is impacts on sort of everything that would correlate with doing well in life. And overwhelmingly, the injuries to this early childhood environment are concentrated on poor kids, often non-white kids. And then these kids grow up and they don't do as well. And we have a politics that is very focused on personal responsibility and blaming people for, for their choices, which, you know, there are uses for that. Uh, but that is trackable back to this stuff. And it creates these gigantic inequalities in society. But then it also feeds into this narrative we have of who is responsible for these inequalities, right? Oh, it's their problem. They have this poor impulse control. As if impulse control, I think we're very comfortable saying, you know, some things are uh, related to where you start in life, right? If you're Donald Trump and your dad gives you millions of dollars as a loan, okay, like maybe you had more of a, uh, an easy start in life than somebody who grew up in, in a poor in a poor inner city uh, and, and didn't have access to that kind of wealth. That said, you know, we, we look at things like impulse control and we really do blame you for that. If you made a decision to do bad things, if you made a decision to not come to class and to cut class, if you made a decision to shoplift, if you made a decision to commit a robbery, that's really on you. And completely you can understand society how that is a valuable space in which to, to exist, right? You do want to, to push people to make better decisions, but we also have very powerful evidence that it's more complicated than that, that people grow up in tough situations and that they are forever harmed by those tough situations. And then we turn around and, you know, completely, completely blame them. And and I just think this stuff is very – I mean, there's the obvious what we should do, which is get lead out of the pipes <laughs> um, and, and try to protect kids from having this happen to them early on. But, you know, in a sort of like broader Rawlsian, like luck and behind the veil of ignorance kind of way, I, I think this stuff should make us question some of the underlying assumptions of our politics and, and the way we assess people's choices and outcomes. But, I mean, I, I, I do want to double down a little on like the specifics of lead, though, because I, I do think there's like some really important lessons here. I mean, one is that huge gains were made. We, we talk a lot about the pipes because it came up in Flint, but like the biggest success story that we've had in reducing lead is that decades ago, regulatory changes were made to take lead out of gasoline, right? And this is a very classic debate. All the time in America, somebody proposes some kind of regulation to have there be less air pollution, and somebody else talks about the devastating impact that this will have on the economy. And when this unleaded gasoline dispute was happening, we had no idea about these long tail lead risks, right? I mean, it was done. People knew that it was polluting, but they were talking about the sort of extreme short term lead poisoning type scenarios like we had in Flint, right? There was no hint at that time in the research that reducing from five micrograms to two micrograms per liter could have a massive impact on uh, ADHD diagnoses, uh, other things that, that we know now. So this was 
like a regulatory initiative that has had benefits that are gargantuan compared to what was thought at the time that it was done. And yet the sort of like the regulatory impulse like does not get credit for that kind of thing in, in the analysis. And in general, when we have arguments about economic growth and, and how do we do it, uh, there, there continues to be an incredible sort of bias toward the idea that um, having taxes be as low as possible is like the solution to everything. But we have a clear example here of how, you know, business acting in its rational business interesty way of putting lead in gasoline, putting lead in paint, of not wanting to spend money on redoing parks and soil wreaks like incredible havoc on people. And the other thing that I think is compelling, particularly about the lead issue, is that there are a lot of things that progressives would sort of like to have the government do, but it's often not clear that the government can actually do it. Like, if we enrolled every child in America in a high-quality preschool program, that would be incredibly beneficial. But high-quality preschool programs are kind of rare, and it's not obvious that you can conjure up like enough of them for everyone. This lead stuff is technically very well understood, right, and very feasible. We definitely have the machinery and the equipment to replace lead pipes with new pipes, to cover up soil and playgrounds with impermeable surfaces, to take paint off window fixtures and replace them with other things. Like, these are, like, that's why the fact that the CDC interventions work is so interesting to me. The fact that tightening the regulation on the gasoline works, that this is stuff that it would take money. But when we spend the money, we accomplish what we set out to accomplish, which is, like, genuinely not the case with every government program. Uh, but this is one where, like, if we put the money into it, we will we will have less lead in people's bloodstreams. And I think this is one where data matters a lot. I think one of the – so we know a lot of the CDC interventions work, but one of the hard things is – and this, again, like, came from reporting on the Flint crisis – the national data on, like, where lead is is just, like, terrible, like, disastrously bad. Some states, it's optional if states want to report that information to the government. States report it in different formats. So it's like really hard to like apples to apples compare. Like, here's the biggest problem spot. I remember, you know, last year, or maybe it was even two years ago at this point, talking to experts who were like, we don't even know where to target the res- – like, if we got all the resources, we don't actually yes. know where to target them. And a lot of that comes down to, like, really boring, mundane, you know, bureaucratic decisions about, like, what data we do and don't collect and what format we ask for it in. And, like, these are things that seem, like, super boring until you get to the point where, like, you know, you end up with something like Flint or you end up, you know, looking at the long-run implications of it that it's a technical thing about whether you want to collect this data, but it has huge policy implications. And right now it is – very, very difficult in most places to, like, get a good sense of, like, if you live in a place with, like, high risk of lead exposure or, like, low risk of lead exposure. I think um, yeah, I think this is probably still true that the two largest states in the country, California and Texas, they don't report um, lead poisoning data to the federal government, um, which is kind of a terrifying fact. Yeah, and, you know, if, if you know, case Jared and Ivanka are listening, it would be good to know, you know, D.C. tests kids' uh, uh, blood levels and reports them if they're extraordinarily elevated. But the National Park Service 
owns a, a huge amount of the, the parkland in D.C., and they don't do any lead testing in the soil. So we can kind of make inferences from studies that happen in community gardens and stuff and see that, like, Logan Circle is probably full of toxic heavy metal. But but the National Park Service doesn't – they're not geared toward that kind of urban mission. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for, for these data gaps, but, like, it would be good to address them. It would not be that expensive for, for example, Texas to like forward the information to the CDC. I, I think they probably have email and you know whatever else could could make that work. And it's it's just not treated seriously as an issue of national significance. All right. So you should always treat podcast recommendations as an issue of national significance and tell your friends, family uh, to listen listen to the weeds and other fine box podcasts, uh, the Ezra Klein show. Here is good. Um, and okay. uh, who's on the Ezra Klein show this week? I had Zephyr Teachout talking about corruption in America. She's one of the lead lawyers in the emoluments lawsuit against Donald Trump. So we talked a bunch about that, a bunch about monopolies, and a bunch about uh, Citizens United and related corruption decisions. It's a, it's a, it's a fun discussion. I will be back on Friday with Yoki Driesen and Jennifer Williams talking about uh, events in the world. Um, so thanks to our producer, Bert Pinkerton, uh, audio engineer, Peter Leonard. And uh, thanks to you for listening.